It's on, yeah. I was wondering if, if you could finish the four immeasurables talk that you started the other day, and you started with loving kindness, and then you made us guess what the next one was going to be, but then you stopped at, yeah. at that one, at um, empathetic joy. But it's really helpful for me to, to know, like, it's this loving kindness is the remedy for looking outside yourself to make you happy, and it just, it, you know, when you sure. put it that way. Yeah. So can you finish? Very good, sure. I'd be happy to give just kind of a synopsis of it. It's one of my favorite all-time topics. Uh, and I stopped short because, as I recall, we were going to um, empathetic joy, wasn't it? Wasn't it empathetic joy? Was it loving? I think it was empathetic joy. And so I was kind of just honing in on that one. But sure, happy to. This is the, this is the wisdom that Buddha Gosa synthesizes. And then remarkably, and I think quite independently, because the, this Visuddhimagga, this great classic synthesis, uh, written in Pali by the great Indian Theravada master Buddhaghosa, I'm just about positive, was never translated into Tibetan, so Tibetans didn't have access to that. And yet, in the Tibetan teachings on the Four Immeasurables, lo and behold, some similar themes coming out. So, let's run through the, kind of the, the basic structure of it, which I think, to my mind, is just saturated by a, a very deep wisdom a deep psychological wisdom. And that is so, first of all, with loving-kindness. We can speak of loving-kindness itself, so I think no further commentary. I think we're pretty clear on what the nature of it is. Um, but the false facsimile, that which can look a lot like loving-kindness, walks like it, quacks like it, behaves like it, and isn't it, you know, uh, is this self-centered attachment. So this can happen romantically. It happens fre frequently, I think, in teenage romances. Uh, so it, it crops up a lot in romance, it can crop up in, in the business world big time. Uh, if somebody wants to sell you something, they may just look like your best friend. Um, and, so, and it can crop up in a multiple, multitude of ways where we engage with other people and we're really giving the appearance as if we really care about them. And in fact, what we really care about is our own happiness and we're seeing this person as an instrument for that. But, you know, the outer display may look an awful lot like loving-kindness and in a way it's, um, it's very deceptive. So there's the false facsimile of it, this self-centered attachment where we're just really not coming outside of the fishbowl of our own, own well-being. And we're seeing others, how can you contribute to my fishbowl, you know? And so it is literally, quite literally, self-centered. And the way to come out of that, what is the remedy for that? Self-centered attachment? Equanimity. Equanimity. And we've just had, what, two days of that, where equanimity is all about breaking through the veils, the, agree the veils of agreeable appearances, disagreeable appearances, this person is better than me, this person is worse than me, all the appearances, breaking through that until we really get, we break through it and we attend to, we're able to connect with somebody when, with whom we feel, I get it, this person is really basically like me. And we have to, may have to go through quite a few layers there. If I try to think of Osama bin Laden, I think, well, he and I are pretty different people. And yet, break through enough layers, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, he's just like my older brother. You know? He has great passion for it. I mean, I could start listing all the, all the qualities that we have in common. He has a great passion for his spiritual path. He definitely wants to defend it. He has a great, great, uh, you know, great sense of community. And, you know, <laughs> I could go on a little bit more, but I think I won't. Um, but so there it is. So the remedy for the self-centered attachment, equanimity, we're clear on equanimity. That's the false facsimile. It looks like loving-kindness, and it's not, the self-centered attachment. That which is diametrically opposed to, head-on collision, 180 degrees different from loving-kindness, and that it's called the distant enemy, or I would say, simply say it's direct 
polar opposite is we call it ill will or malice. And this, it's really interesting to see whether it ever crops up. You might, want, you might go for a day, for a week, a month, and never see malice arise in your mind stream. It's possible. But malice doesn't have to be, you know, poison dripping from the fangs. It doesn't have to be, you know, absolutely grotesque. It can just be any impulse where we really don't want another person to prosper, to succeed, to be happy, to be liked, admired. Why? Why? Because you're not worth it. You, you don't deserve that. You, you, sh you shouldn't get that. If you get it, well, the, the world is awry. Things are not working out. You know? That's ill will. Where we just flat out don't want somebody to be happy. And when it becomes really an intention, then we're actually willing to go out of our way to make sure that person doesn't find happiness, success. That gives rise to slanderous speech, abuse, and so forth. So there's, the little, that, there's that little couplet there. The loving kindness, the false facsimile, and the polar opposite. Then we go to the second one. And this is really leading to a crescendo where my, my heart really soars when he put it all together. And that, that the second one, and this is straight from Buddhaghosa. Uh, and, and Buddhaghosa, it's not one man conjuring this all up. He's drawing on centuries of yogic experience. So he's a great synthesizer. The second one, compassion, we know what it is. What is the false facsimile? It is simply sadness. It's slipping into grief, it's slipping into despair, into kind of a hopelessness about ourselves, the others, the world at large, about anything. We're just, it starts out, that is, and there's something very interesting about compassion, is that compassion starts with empathy. If there's no empathy, there's just nothing to feel compassion for. There's just appearances. So that sense of empathy with another sentient being, then there's the ground. But since compassion is about alleviating suffering, then the empathy is going to be a, sensing, experiencing with another person's troubles. Their pain, their physical, their, their mental distress, if they're angry, if they're bitter, if they're greedy, then you know, sensing that with them and feeling a sympathy for that. But the sympathy itself, the empathy by itself is not compassion. It is a feeling with. And interestingly enough, there's a top-notch, world-class brain scientist at the University of Zurich by the name of Tanya Singer. And she's actually found that there are different brain correlates. This is what does, the brain is interesting. There are different brain correlates for empathy versus compassion. Quite interesting. So they are actually, even neurophysiolo neurophysiologically, the correlates are distinct, but they're related. And that is, as you well know by now, compassion is not simply feeling with, it's not simply feeling sorry for someone, including ourselves, but it is this dynamic aspiration. May you be free. But sometimes it's almost like you, you rubbed, what, should, what would be a good example? You start something and then it just peters out. It just, it, you go, ah. It's like starting an engine that just won't start. You go, ah. You expect it to go, ah, and really get going. But, ah, yeah, ah, yeah. Well, empathy that never sparks into compassion may spark into something else. It may spark into apathy, depression, chronic depression. I think it could spark into clinical depression, where we just don't see any way out. We don't see any point in really wishing for a freedom because we see it's hopeless. There's no point in wishing. Just give up. It's a hopeless situation. And so simple sadness for others sadness for the world situation and so on, uh, including there may be tears and so forth and expressions of grief and sympathy and all of that. It really looks a lot like compassion, but it's not. 
And if it's just grief and slipping into despair, then it's actually working against compassion, just as self-centered joy, self-centered attachment works against loving kindness. The remedy, I think you've got this one figured out. Uh, I'm expecting a strong show. Um, what is the remedy for grief, despair, sense of hopelessness? Empathetic joy, yeah. Because what's happening when we fall into that sense of hopelessness, grief, despair, is that we have now fallen out of balance. And that is, we may be attending realistically to some aspects of reality, but we're ignoring others, right? We're ignoring those, those rays of hope. We're ignoring all the, the contrary reality out there that could balance things out. And so empathetic joy is not looking through rose-tinted glasses. It's balancing out our vision of what's going on in the world, including ourselves. We can despair about ourselves. It's easy to do. But then balancing out, so wait a minute. Somebody just commented to me recently of feeling, you know, sometimes really through the meditation sometimes, dredging the psyche and seeing all the junk coming up and thinking, ah, what a terrible person am I? I've been practicing Dharma for such and such period and I'm still just disaster area and really kind of getting down and then kind of backing up and saying, oh, wait a minute, I'm not that bad. I'm, kind, I'm actually I'm quite kind and I've been generous on many occasions and oh, oh yeah, there's that too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it balances out. It balances out. And this is not an, an act of self-aggrandizement. Oh, what a jolly good fellow am I. It's just a quest for balance. So empathetic joy comes to the rescue. That's the way I like to think of it, of compassion when it falls astray, when it goes astray and falls into grief and despair. And I think of all, I think, I actually took a course on ethics when I was at Stanford as a graduate student, and there were, there were, there were some really quite insightful discussions of vice, vice or evil, vices or evil. And what is the most malevolent, the, the most awful, the worst of all vices? And... I, going through that course, there was something proposed by the professor, and I think we, I wound up agreeing with him. We could have a whole show on the hands of this, but I'll just I'll cut to the chase. We know there are many vices. There's arrogance, there's selfishness, greed, pettiness, jealousy. The list goes on and on and on. Of just personality traits, qualities of the mind. A lot of them are really, really pretty awful. But we, I decided on one through this class, actually, that I thought one of all the vices, including ignorance and, and delusion, awful, the, the, the root, but they don't just punch you in the face all the time. They can be a little bit quiet. But one I thought was really the most malevolent is that which is diametrically opposed to compassion. And it's called cruelty. And if you think, who would you most like not to be your next door neighbor? That is to say, what vice would you most like your next door neighbor not to have? I think cruelty might be really at the top of the list right? Cruelty. You've got a cruel next door neighbor, spouse, whatever, whatever. That would be kind of like maybe the limit because cruelty is an aspiration. May you suffer. May you have the causes of suffering. And if I can help, I will. I'll pitch in. That's about as malevolent, as malignant, as awful, I think, as it gets. And that's diametrically opposed to compassion. So compassion, of course, is the remedy. So there's that triad. Then we have empathetic joy. I think we're all clear on that. It's false facsimile is simply frivolity or getting totally attached to, hung up, embedded in the pursuit of and enjoyment, the grasping onto hedonic pleasures. Life is just so grand. Who needs dharma? I'm doing really well. I'm okay. If you're not okay, well, better luck next time. But I'm really okay. 
So just frivolous, lightweight, fluffy. Um, so there's that. That's the false facsimile of it. And this is among the antidotes. The most, this is the one I find most interesting and not intuitively obvious. Even now, I sometimes have to think, and what was the antidote for that? Oh, yeah, that one. What is the antidote for just hedonic fixation, frivolity? Loving kindness. It's such a good friend. Loving kindness, what a sweet remedy. Because, you, you, you know, for, for monks and nuns, people with a strong ascetic ideal, and I know what that's like, but an ascetic ideal, an, an ideal of austerity, an ideal of impermanence, six modes of suffering, three modes of suffering, six realms of existence, three lower realms, 18 hell realms, you know, if you start getting hung up in hedonic, well, we're just going to take a club and beat you to death with impermanence and death and suffering, and we're going to just mash that hedonic craving right out of you, you know? <laughs> It'd be pretty intense. And there's value in that. I mean, it, it's also balancing out. But among the four immeasurables, it's love and kindness. Just coming in as a wise friend and saying, you know, I too want you to be happy, and you're looking in the wrong places. This will deliver the, the icing. It won't deliver the cake. And so that's the remedy for it. That which is diametrically opposed to empathetic joy, I would want to look at it in two ways, because I think two things are diametrically opposed. They're related but not identical. That is, just number one, just linguistically, what's the very opposite of taking delight in others' joys, their, their successes and their virtues? Well, can't stand it, <laughs> you know? Can't stand it. Yeah, you know. And so envy, envy, I just can't stand it. You're so rich, you're so famous, everybody loves you, you're so virtuous, you're so whatever, whatever. You know, so, boom, I can't possibly delight in it because I can't stand it. So that would be diametrically opposed. But another, and, but that's often pointed. That is, I'm jealous of Jack. I'm jealous of Jill. This person, that person. Oh, that bugs me. I'm so jealous of that person. Um, whereas sometimes it can be, instead of being like a missile that has a real trajectory to it, I'm jealous of you, it can just kind of go like, bleh. <laughs> just... To whom it may concern. And now it's not jealous of the whole world because not everybody's doing better off than we are. So what would, what would be the word that would leap to your tongue if you think just generally to whom it may concern? I am at all, I take no satisfaction or pleasure in your virtues or happiness whatsoever. Any words spring to mind? To my mind, oh, it's, it's beyond indifference. I would say cynicism. That is, you may be happy, but it's just fluff. It'll pass. You're going to be dead soon. <laughs> it may be virtue. It's probably phony. You may be really generous. Yeah, what's in it for you? You look so kind and lovey. Yeah, lovey-dovey. How sweet for you. What do you want? <laughs> you know? People who just cannot see it, will not see it, because they can't find it here, and they just can't imagine it's there. They've just become so grumpy, you know, <laughs> such sour pusses, that they just can't take pleasure in anybody else's joy, let alone their virtues. So that's flat-out cynicism. And there's a fair amount of that out there these days. And so what is the remedy, how do you say, when, what we're dealing with here? Oh, with empathetic joy, we already know it's loving kindness. So there's that triad. And then we finally we move to equanimity. Equanimity is clear. That which is the false facsimile that looks like it, can behave like it, can be, we can be tricked that it really looks, it is the same thing and it's profoundly not. 
It's called stupid indifference or aloof indifference. And it is even. It's even. Just like equanimity. It's even. And that is, I equally really don't care about anybody at all. Family, so-called friends. Doesn't make much difference. Who cares? That's their problem. Not my business. So whoever you are, don't expect me to get excited one way or another. Because you're just not my affair. Pooh. Call that equanimity. This is kind of like turning into a stone statue. You know, it's cold, it's aloof, it's stupid, and it's indifferent. But it, but it may look very, on an occasion very austere, like, you know. The, don't bother me. I'm experiencing equanimity. So, really a poor shadow, a poor shadow of the actual equanimity, which is just full of heart, full of warmth, full of kindness, and evenly expressed. So that's a false facsimile. And now by a process of elimination, the remedy for that, where we just, we just stop caring. That's the, and this happens too. I mean, I was giving something of a character, really more like a cartoon, but speaking more sympathetically and realistically, uh, something of this sort, not awful, not grotesque, but something of this sort occurs, I think, not infrequently in the teaching profession, especially for, for like adolescent, teaching adolescents, teaching kids, especially in really tough schools. When Paul, uh, when, uh, well, when we, when we were running the scientific study for cultivating emotional balance that Paul Ekman and I put together and a woman, wonderfully gifted woman by the name of Margaret Cullen, she and I co-taught this 42-hour training of cultivating emotional balance. And we taught it in the San Francisco area. We had teachers coming over from Berkeley, from Oakland, from various parts of San Francisco, the whole Bay Area. Well, some of the schools they came, came from were really tough schools where teachers would get stabbed. They would have uh, death threats. Uh, they'd have some pretty, really heavy, heavy-duty students that could be very threatening. And moreover, not much interest in, in studying either. It's hard. I mean, I would lose all joy of teaching if people I were teaching had no interest in, in learning. I just wanted, I would say, okay, I'm finished. I just retired, you know. Well, these teachers, again, overall, very poorly paid for the work they do, the amount of work they do, and then often tension with the administration, who has another set of agenda that they have to carry through with, and then problems in the classroom. And they came in, and I think the great majority of them, I came out of three of these t training sessions with teachers, and I came out with a very elevated appreciation for teachers, elementary school, secondary school teachers. That I just came away thinking, wow, you people are heroes. You are, my job is just a piece of cake compared to what you people do. Because it's tough, and it's really demanding so much work, enormous amount of work. It carries right through the weekend, into the night. Uh, and, and they're having to deal on so many levels, and they may have 35 children in a, in a, in a class, and trying to attend to each one individually, and not just, okay, class as one bunch. And what can happen here, and we saw that in some cases of these teachers. One in particular, she was um, about 50, 55. And she, when she began this cultivating emotional balance training with us, uh, we had everybody introduce themselves. And they're all women. They're all women teachers as part of the scientific study. And this one woman, 50, 55 or so, she said, I've been a teacher for 30 years, 25, 30 years, long time. And she said, I'm basically, I'm just counting the days until I can retire. I'm just waiting until I retire. I am so tired. I'm so wasted. 
I'm so burnt out, but I've got to get to retirement, get my pension. So, and I, I think you can tell I say this with sympathy, that there's no moral judgment here. But that was a tough job, and she was in it for you know, year after year after year, and she was burnt out. I'm happy to say that at the end of this 42-hour training, then when people were then again introducing themselves about now, how are you now? She said, well, my attitude towards my work has fundamentally changed. This is one of the most, most moving things we heard from anyone there, at least from my perspective. And she said, now with this training, as I look forward to the, the next few years of my before retirement, I want to see how each day can be as meaningful as possible. I was very moved by that, right? So she had moved out of this more, this cold indifference, of this apathy that wasn't grotesque, it was just tired. It was just fatigued, exhausted. Now this happens in education, it happens in social work, it ha happens in medicine, and I'm sure it happens in other professions as well. So no cartoon here. We just have to sympathize with these people. They're burnt out, they're just so tired uh, it happens in the medical profession. I remember one person, uh, rather very low on the, pay, on, the, on the, what do they call it, pay grade, or pay, pay scale, in a hospital, but really pretty much at the bottom of the heap. This person was the, um, I can't remember the exact title, but this is the person, when you come to the desk, this is the person you get to talk to, not even a nurse. It was a something assistant, I can't remember the name, but it was the lowest paid. And this person got was on the front lines. So when people are coming in, the first thing they're generally doing is complaining. And, and this person got to be the receiver. So, hi, good day, how are you? I am pissed off as blah, blah, blah. And, oh, okay, how, how can I? Well, your, your hospital stinks and blah, blah. How, how can I help you? you know, and just dealing with that day after day after day. After a while, this person, and I think she's not alone, said, I couldn't take it anymore. I didn't want to hear their complaints. I didn't care anymore. I had had so many cigarettes put out on my face, metaphorically speaking, which tired of it. And I didn't care how much they suffered. Take it someplace else. I am tired of this. And she bailed out. So, and again, I think you can tell. I'm not saying, oh, boy, that was a morally degenerate person. How superior am I? Absolutely not. So that can happen, that can happen a lot. And in this fast-paced, multitasking-driven uh, world we live, live in that you, you don't need any description for. This is a big one. Let alone our exposure to all the misery and suffering evil, and evil in the world by way of the media that, we, that I've discussed before. So what's the remedy when we find ourselves just getting, just going into cold indifference, flat out indifference, don't care anymore? What's the remedy? It's compassion. That in the midst of that, no matter how tired we are, no matter how withdrawn we want to be, When a madman is going through a school and stabbing one child after another, you can't attend to that. You can't let your mind come to that. You cannot and just feel indifferent. If you imagine the suffering, the terror of the children running away from a person wielding a knife and stabbing their, their playmates, it's not possible, right? And that was just one little instance. So much suffering, so much sadness, so much loneliness, physical pain, Fear, anxiety in the world, attending to that, you, you just can't. Nobody can be that dead. You'd have to be vegetative, I think, not to, not to arouse yourself. I have to care. I have to care. Right. So, and that which is diametrically opposed, of course, is just 
having attachment for those who are near and aversion for those who are far. But to summarize this, thank you for a very rich and, and juicy question, and I want to summarize it. And this is where I think it just comes to its, it's kind of like, like a flower that buds, 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 and then you just find it, oh, it's now in full bloom. And now to put these together, to put these together, I like to do it with a metaphor, and I really love the metaphor. I made it up, so it's just maybe I like it because it's mine, <laughs> real possible. But if we think of, especially when we venture outside of this wonderfully cloistered environment here, of this mind center, which everything's so protected and so, so wonderfully taken care of, and we venture out into the rest of the world, not, not the real world, just the rest of the world, um, these four immeasurables really can be our best friends, our guardians. And if we think, we, in, the, in the, the Buddhist tradition, they speak of the Mahayana, for example, the great vehicle. So there's a lot of Vajrayana, great vehicle, Vajrayana vehicle. And so the whole notion of, of spiritual path, of the spiritual practice being a vehicle going along the path to enlightenment, the notion of vehicle is, comes up a lot, big metaphor. And so if we think of our spiritual practice as a vehicle, our lives as a vehicle, then one image I really love is like your vehicle is like a chariot. Okay, the vehicle of your life. How do you lead your life? How do you, how do you follow your, engage in and embrace your own spiritual practice? Think of it as a chariot. And think of it as a chariot pulled by four mighty stallions, four great steeds. Okay? Two in front, of course, two in back. And imagine the one, the, two, the lead chargers, these strong, mighty steeds pulling your chariot. Imagine the one on the front and to the left. Imagine that's loving kindness, you know, guiding the way, pulling you forward. Loving-kindness. Loving-kindness for yourself, loving-kindness for those around you. So there's the one on the left. And then on the right is the other mighty stallion, the great steed, the charger of compassion. So your life being led by loving-kindness and compassion. Who, who better to pull you forward in the right direction? Immediately behind this horse on the left, right behind, who will be there? Equanimity equanimity. And who's right behind the, the, uh, the, the compassion? Empathetic joy. So imagine just, just like a little a matrix, loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity, and empathetic joy. And they'll pull you forward, definitely on the right path. Anywhere those four horses will take you, that's got to be a good, good place to go, right? But as to follow this metaphor, imagine that on occasion loving-kindness, this great stallion, this great steed of loving-kindness stumbles starts to fall, right? Go astray. And that is to say, loving kindness stumbling into just self-centered attachment, falling off the path. Well, then the, the great steed just behind loving kindness, being equanimity, rescues, comes to the rescue of loving kindness. Basically, equanimity is the best friend, the guardian, the watcher of loving kindness, telling him, don't worry, loving kindness, should you go astray, I've got your back. Literally, I have your back. I'm looking right at your rump. And if you go astray, I will bring you right back and get you back, back on course, back on the path. So don't worry, I'm watching. I've got your back. I'll take care of you. Meanwhile, there's compassion over there on the front right. Compassion goes astray by, as we know, falling into the false facsimile, grief, despair, hopelessness, feeling just all is lost. But right behind compassion is empathetic joy. It says the same thing. Compassion don't worry. If you, fall, if you start just slipping into sadness and grief, don't worry. I'm your best friend. I'm your guardian. I will watch your back. And if you fall astray, I will help you out. I'll bring you back on course. In the meantime, we have equanimity there on the back left, 
equanimity can stray, can stumble, fall into just apathy, getting burned out, apathy, dull indifference, stupid indifference. But then compassion, looking over the left, from the left eye, glances back at equanimity, equanimity, don't worry, I've got my eye on you. I'm looking after you. I'm looking after you. You go astray, I will come to your rescue. Don't worry. I'm keeping an eye on you. I'll come to your rescue. And likewise for empathetic joy over here on the right, when the empathetic joy just starts getting frivolous, lightweight, just caught up in samsara, thinking it's really a great place to hang out, with or without mental afflictions, who cares? Loving kindness looks over the right shoulder. He empathetic joy, don't worry. I'm keeping an eye on you. If you just start getting silly, frivolous, I've got my eye on you. I'll look after you. I'll help you out. So I just think there's something of a majesty in the way these four all are balancing each other. Each one is a noble, a noble quality of heart and mind in and of itself. Needs no outside justification. Each one independently. The four together, a marvelous matrix. But then how the four protect each other, that comes from the Tibetan tradition. This, how they internally remedy each other, take care of, look after each other. When I read that, oh, I was just blown away. I thought, what wisdom, what a heart full of wisdom is there in that. So that's a short summary.